Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast. Today on the pod, personal use of hard drugs is now decriminalized. Now what? Fiona Wilson from the BC Chiefs of Police, former Mayor Kennedy Stewart, and Minister Jennifer Whiteside join us as this historic pilot project takes effect in BC. Plus, the case against clearing 10 cities. Is Canadian case law making it impossible for municipalities from clearing homeless encampments? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Show podcast. present situation through the lens of law enforcement. Joining us now is the Je- Deputy Chief in the Vancouver Police Department, Fiona Wilson. Ms. Wilson, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for has- having me, Jazz. So an important day, an hist- historic day. It is a pilot project. Mm-hmm. Uh, walk us through law enforcement's view of all of this. I know you support it. Uh, give me a sense of what today means to, to you and your members. Well, you know, I think police in uh, British Columbia and certainly the Vancouver Police Department, we have a long history of advocating for uh, progressive changes to drug policy. Um, Today marks an important milestone because, you know, one of the things that we've been advocating for for a long time is um, decriminalization, along with things like treatment on demand um, and safe supply. Um, so I think it's very important to recognize that decriminalization is all, only a very uh, small piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. It's an important piece of the puzzle. It's not going to solve the problem of illicit drug overdose deaths. But um, combined with all of those other things that I just mentioned, including education, prevention, treatment on demand, um, we're hoping that it can achieve the goal that you know we all have to reduce those dramatic number of overdose deaths. Uh, Broadly speaking, how often have your members arrested anybody with two and a half grams of hard drugs over the last few years? That's a great question. You know, at the VPD for many years, um, we have not been recommending charges for the most part in relation to people who are in simple possession of illicit drugs. So I believe our number last year, for example, was three requests um, uh, for charges to Crown Council. Um, and that's primarily because we recognize that, um, you know, uh, problematic drug use is a health matter. It's not uh, a criminal matter. And, you know, the last thing we want to do is criminalize people because of their um, challenges with addiction and or mental health. Um, so, I, you know, over the last number of years, and those examples, those three examples from last year, for example, um, they would be exceptional circumstances. Like there were other mitigating factors that led to the recommendation for charges. And prior to that, for a number of years, we average about five a year. And when when you consider that we go to 700 to 800 calls for service a day, um, that's a tiny, tiny, tiny number. So as much as, and I don't want to trivialize this, but as much as we have made today the, I guess, the first day in regards to the law, we basically have decriminalized the use of hard drugs for many, many years here in the city of Vancouver. You nailed it, Jazz. We sure have. The only big difference is that historically, despite the fact that we wouldn't arrest someone for small amounts of personal possession, we would um, often seize those drugs. And that is a big departure uh, from what will happen now that decriminalization uh, or the exemption under Section 56 of the CDSA has come into to place. Mm-hmm. Um, so we won't be seizing drugs either that are under that uh, threshold of 2.5 grams. So that is a bit of a difference. Um, we weren't always doing that, of course, but we average, I would say, 
about 50% of the time we were still seizing drugs because, you know, of course our members are thinking, boy, if I don't take this person's drug, they could go around the corner and overdose and die, um, knowing uh, how poisonous the drug supply is. So that is quite a big change that we'll see moving forward. Uh, I just look at uh, this conversation through the lens of just being a reporter from the early 1990s, like 91 to today, and it it is a a significant change not only for law enforcement but for society in general. There's got to be a lot of years where you as a police officer and as a police department felt like you're a scapegoat for everything that's happening. If you try to make arrests, you've got activists challenging you, uh, accusing you of police brutality. And now here we are, we're talking about de- decriminalization. Where does law enforcement fit, f- fit, fit in today? I mean, to a certain degree, do you feel that at the very least some of the challenges that law enforcement's had to deal with, like I said, being being accused of brutality or being accused of picking on folks that have, have these substance abuse issues, does that take a weight off police, police departments as well? Well, I think one of the things that, you know, our officers um, have experienced over the years, and certainly I have in my career, and I can liken this to, um, you know, apprehending people over and over again, sometimes in the same shift, by virtue of behavior that was as a result of them suffering from uh, the effects of a mental illness. You know, it never feels like the right thing to do to put someone like that in jail. Um, when you know that really in your heart, um, at, uh, it's, it's a matter that should be dealt with more appropriately through health channels. And it's the same thing uh, with people who um, have uh, addiction challenges with illicit drugs. You know, um, taking somebody who is um, in that those circumstances and putting them in jail, I can tell you, like, it just never felt like the right thing to do. And thankfully, in Vancouver, for many, many years, we, we've really focused our, our attention on people and organizations that are importing, producing, and trafficking in illicit substances and away from those um, those individuals who themselves are really struggling with addiction. So when the people listening to this are going to go, well, where does law enforcement fit into this? Where does uh, enforcement in general, you've talked a little bit about the drug dealers, does this give you any more resources to go after them, do you think? I mean, because that's part of it. I think there's a large part of the population still that remains mm-hmm. skeptical, not that they don't have a heart, not that they don't have empathy. They just have difficulty with us decriminalizing, even for a pilot project, hard mm-hmm. drugs, mm-hmm. where if your resources aren't going to be spent on the front lines in regards to some of these uh, individuals that have challenges before them, uh, mm-hmm. where do you think those resources, or do you have any extra resources to deal with the, 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 the drug dealers, the you know mm-hmm. bigger, broader transnational crime groups that are bringing all this stuff in here? Mm-hmm. Well, honestly, Jazz, because we've had basically de facto decriminalization for small amounts of personal possession of illicit drugs in Vancouver for many, many years, it's not like we've been dedicating this Um, you know, host of resources towards that in any event. So I wouldn't say that we have any extra resources. But what I can say is that we have a lot of practice now, a lot of years under our belt, where we have been focusing our resources on those higher level individuals and organizations that are really causing the most harm. Um, You know, uh, one of the things that... um, we've been doing now for many years is redirecting those resources that typically, you know, back in the 90s and early 2000s even would have perhaps been focused on 
um, street-level enforcement, um, we have been, you know, over many years redirecting those resources to that higher level of enforcement. Mm -hmm. Deputy Chief Wilson, thank you so much for your time today. It's my pleasure. To get to this point when it comes to politics requires a significant amount of discussion and negotiations behind closed doors. Those are uh, never easy. Now, the man who is front and centre when it comes to having that conversation is former Vancouver Mayor Kennedy Stewart. Uh, he is coming out with a new book called Decrim, How We Decriminalize Drugs in British Columbia. Uh, he talks about what's happening behind the scenes and also the broader conversation of why uh, British Columbia is headed in this direction. The book, to my understanding, is coming out in May, but this is very important today and it was important to have him on the show as well. He joins us now. Today, he is the Director of the Centre for Public Policy Research at Simon Fraser University. Uh, uh, Kennedy, thank you for joining us today. Hey, great to be here, Jess. Thanks for having me. So what's uh, today mean to you? I mean, you were negotiating behind the scenes. You've been a mayor, of course. Uh, what's this day mean to you? Well, uh, it depends what hat I'm wearing. Um, you know, first and foremost, as someone who's lost a family member uh, to toxic drugs, it means a lot to our family that that death has uh, a meaning that there's mm-hmm. some meaning behind it. And so that, and I think many families across British Columbia, too many are feeling the same way, is that um, any kind of change is is important. As, uh, as a policy uh, maker, as a former mayor and MP, this is important, I think, that shows that Canada's heading in a different direction when it comes to moving away from the war on drugs and moving more to a, a much more health-centered approach and then finally, as a, as a public policy professor, I think that this shows, uh, you know, presents an opportunity to show how these policies can be changed in the future. Mm-hmm. Now, some have said, look, they've tried this in Oregon or in the midst of that conversation. Many people talk about the Portugal model. Uh, there have been critics of both models as well, that it hasn't done what many felt it was going to do. And, and, and it hasn't been as successful as some people have said uh, it is, particularly around the Portugal model, uh, that the successes are not black and white. What makes you think we can succeed here uh, in British Columbia? Yeah, well, for me, it's, I guess, it's what you, you think success is. So, you know, the overall thing that we're all looking for is, is reduction in, in uh, toxic drug overdoses and, of course, death, which is really the most grim statistic that, that any kind of policymakers can, can deal with. Um, uh, but there's a, there's a number of kind of sub-indicators. For example, uh, one that's not talked about as much is the seizures of drugs. So, um, and this, uh, so we know from the police, and I'm sure uh, Deputy Chief uh, Fiona Wilson told you this, that there's not that many arrests in Vancouver, at least. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are more across the province and other jurisdictions, so they don't make a difference province-wide. But what there are a lot of is drug seizures. And so if you're caught with small amounts of drugs, uh, uh, um, just uh, one of our students actually at the School of Public Policy did her um, master's on this, uh, was that half of the seizures of drugs, which there are a lot, thousands, are actually under this threshold. So police are still seizing small quantities of drugs from folks that are caught with them. And this is like, to me, it's kind of like, you know, you meet some teenagers on the beach and you pour out their alcohol and let them go on their way. This is kind of what police are doing on a very regular basis um, right across the province, uh, running into to folks that have small quantities of drugs, taking them away, and then letting them go on their way. 
um, unfortunately, what happens in those cases is a lot of those folks that are very dependent are forced into very risky behaviors to try to uh, secure the drugs that they need uh, to to function. So, so, so that is that's where I think the biggest difference will be uh, through this policy. You uh, talked about uh, you know the negotiations that go on behind closed doors, uh, raising mm-hmm. the profile of this issue. Walk me through what that was like when you first brought this issue up in the corridors of power, not just here in BC, but more importantly in Ottawa, because this is ultimately a federal law. This is a pilot project, but it's a federal law. Walk me through some of the skepticism or perhaps questions you uh, dealt with uh, behind the scenes. Sure. So um, I like it in late 2018, but in 2019, we were actually seeing quite a drop in uh, the number of deaths due to toxic drugs. And so a lot of the focus at that point was uh, safe supply. So I remember being on a, a panel with Dr. Bonnie Henry and talking to, uh, you know, Dr. Patricia Daly and, and all the, the health advisors uh, in British Columbia. And in 2019, uh, the, the whole focus was on getting safe supply programs up off the ground. But after the pandemic hit, um, that changed things radically. The, the, the drug supply changed uh, very significantly, and, and we had, we've had a, a massive spike in, in deaths. And so... Um, so that's when all policy options kind of came on the table for some of us. And uh, the Prime Minister told me twice to my face in uh, 2019 that uh, that he was never going to decriminalize drugs. Uh, the Premier was uh, Premier Horgan at that point was reluctant. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took the work of activists really to to really drive this uh, to uh, the federal level, and in the end. Uh, convinced us at the city to um, to make an application uh, for an exemption at the citywide level, then that uh, then the province quickly followed with their uh, with the province wide exemption application, which was uh, takes effect today. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it was a long and winding road uh, to get here, and I think that's a really important story to understand for folks who want to move further in this direction or do any policy change, is that how much work it takes. You know, lots of people saying, you know, this isn't going to solve things and it's not that big a change. But how much political work it takes to get something like this done is is worth understanding. Some have said, that, look, we're, we're a G7 nation with a strong social safety net in the grand scheme of things. And it's odd for British Columbia and Canada to take sort of this libertarian hands-off approach and that we should still be fo- we should instead be focusing on more um, uh, beds first of all for treatment yeah. we're at about 3200 I think in this province 320 yeah. have been added since the NDP uh, were elected in 2017 more mm-hmm. needed uh, but look focus on those treatment beds focus on issues around housing employment and health care that's where our focus should be not on decriminalizing these drugs even for personal use what do you say to that argument I agree with a lot of it. I do think that treatment. I mean, we uh, while I was mayor, we approved the uh, the biggest uh, drug treatment center in uh, in British Columbia, which is going on um, Clark uh, Clark Drive. So that uh, has been approved, and the province will be constructing that soon. So I absolutely agree. And uh, you know, I've had many friends who have gone through treatment, so that's definitely important. But what we have to realize is that 80% of uh, very hard drug users, like uh, heroin and cocaine, and and increasingly other opioids uh, relapse, about 80% of them relapse. And so treatment is is going to work for, for a small proportion of people, you know, and I guess the dream is that you get off drugs forever and you're always clean. But um, in many, many cases, that's, 
that's not the effect, and people uh, are on and off drugs for their entire lives. And so, so we need a kind of real everything we can have. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, so decriminalization is important. Uh, treatment's important. Safe supply is probably the most important thing. We can move out that people get off of these poison drugs and and you know live their lives uh, with a, in a much more predictable way. But uh, of course, housing and and all those jobs and everything else are all important because at the root of all this is often trauma and. Um, Trauma comes from many, many places, uh, but one thing we always have to be conscious of is, of course, we've recently nationally declared that we have committed genocide here in Canada, and a lot of the trauma, that resulting trauma, does end up, unfortunately, leading to, um, you know, substance abuse, substance use, and a lot of that is poison drugs. So this is, you know, affecting Indigenous people more than anybody else, and um, that needs to be factored into. My final question to you, people have some pointed to Oregon uh, as a place that has decriminalized uh, hard drugs. Uh, Portugal, people talk about the Portugal model, and, and there are mm-hmm. a lot of folks who point to it and say, look, there's lots of success there. Others have said, look, uh, there has been some success, sh- sh- certainly, but they've also implemented other things beyond just decriminalization, which is, uh, you know, guaranteed minimum uh, income, housing assistance, all those wraparound services that we often talk about. Uh, what first of all, do you believe those two particular jurisdictions have been successful at it? And if, if we do what they do, would you view it as a success, or do you think we need to do more? Because if it's just those two uh, jurisdictions, many people have said they have not been complete successes, and we're kind of flying blind here a little bit with this experiment. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that uh, all success is, is going to be to a degree. It's it's never going to be, you know, you're in the fix that you're in now with, with just just really a huge number of people dying necessarily and to a point where you're at zero and, and nobody's using drugs anymore, you're you're gonna you're gonna have some middle ground. So for me the the number one metric that, that will show success initially is that the, the number of people dying decreases uh, significantly, uh, to a point where it was, you know, in the in the uh, <clears throat> in the nineteen eighties we would have you know, very, very low levels of overdose and now, since that point, it is just um, you know ten, twenty, thirty times that level. So, uh, I think that's what all health policy analysts are looking at: is how do we, how do we, how do we not just keep people alive, but but make sure they have better lives. So, so that's really what really the the, the measure should be. Although that, you know, again, when we talk about statistics and and outcomes, it's a pretty cold way of looking at individual people who are really having very, very tough lives and at risk of death daily. So we always have to keep in mind the individuals that are that are living this, and it's it's a pretty brutal life in a lot of cases. Yeah. Kennedy, thank you for your uh, time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Interesting uh, court decision uh, last Friday that uh, we haven't talked about. I don't think anybody's really talked about it. It didn't actually occur here in Vancouver or in British Columbia. It actually occurred in the Ontario Superior Court of Justice, and some people are saying it's precedent-setting. What basically the decision decision that came down basically said that it's unconstitutional for municipalities uh, to clear homeless encampments from public property if there are not enough accessible beds in the shelter system 
to house the homeless population, so it violates their rights. Now, the case involved the municipality of Waterloo in Ontario and regards to an encampment there they wanted to get rid of. The decision, however, builds on earlier decisions from British Columbia, and it, they could have, obviously, implications on municipalities in uh, in Ontario and potentially BC uh, as well. We're going to check in with uh, John Green, who's a lawyer at John Michael Green Law Corporation. Uh, we wanted to chat with him about this decision in Ontario and what it means potentially here in British Columbia. John, thank you for joining us. So walk me through, is this precedent setting for British Columbia as well? Nope. Uh, British Columbia already had had done, kind of gone to the extent that the judge in Ontario had gone to. So this, the judge in Ontario actually looked to the British Columbia Court of Appeal and what they had done in a decision called Adams, I think back in about 2009, mm-hmm. uh, which was followed by our Chief Justice in a more recent decision called Stewart. And, and basically those decisions stand for the fact, or maybe stand for the law, that if the cities don't have uh, beds for the number of homeless people uh, in the city at that given time, then those people are permitted to stay in uh, public spaces. Uh, I often get calls on this show uh, and other talk shows uh, from folks who are quite angry sometimes when they see these uh, homeless encampments, tent cities, that said, look, why aren't police moving in? Why are municipal politicians not doing anything about this? I think the last mayor, Kennedy Stewart, dealt with a lot of that as well. It Essentially, what you're telling me, it just comes down to the law. If you do not have space in shelters for these individuals, uh, there is no way that uh, you should be moving them. Yeah, I think I used to think like that too, but I, I actually think I'm kind of ignorant for thinking that way. Um, so the, the, I think the first thing when you start to look at it is, uh, and what the judge in that decision Ontario did and, and the judges in British Columbia do is they kind of look at, like, are the people in these places, like who are they and are they dangerous? And the Ontario decision kind of walks through that, like because the city, some of the evidence that they tried to lead to talk about that, it was kind of funny. So they, they actually permitted cross-examination of the city's person that advanced this position. And they said they counted eight people that were, quote, unquote, suspicious persons without any definition, the judge said. And then they said that uh, they developed a risk rating system. And and the judge quoted, he said, the region shows 20 tenths as an indicator of high risk because they thought, quote, 20 made good sense, unquote. Uh, the judge ended and said, I find that there was little or no analysis to justify the decision. And and it was, the judge goes on like that, just to go through the data that was given to him by the city. And I think uh, he did that on the danger side. He said, basically, there's no danger to these uh, encampments uh, when you really look at it. And then the other thing he said was, let's look at the beds and let's look at the situation when a city comes to us and says, like, look, we've got 200 beds and there's 200 people inside, so this should just go away. And the judge said, okay, well, let's look at what the, these beds actually look like. And when he did the analysis and walked through all the beds that the city said they had available, mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't even close to the number that the city was coming in front of the court to say they had. So I think it's probably like that a lot of the time. I, I know I used to work uh, downtown uh, at one of the uh, did the legal clinic at, at one of the under one of the shelters and stuff. And these are pretty restrictive places. And uh, the data on that was used by the court is about 95% of these people uh, have active, I mean, they're active opiate addictions, right? So these people run on cycles where the addiction or, or the medications wear off, the drugs wear off, they go into withdrawal, the withdrawal is just awful. Um, they have to use the medications again, but if they're having, they can't get in and out, these people are going to choose to stay out because they don't, they can't live like that. So 
This does tie the hands of elected officials, though, who do have to deal with the brunt of uh, public frustration. People don't want to see it, never mind the issues which you've articulated very well. Um, And we're going to be speaking to the Minister of Mental Health and Addiction uh, after the 5 o'clock news on on these issues. But uh, you've articulated it well, but people just don't want to see this stuff. They don't visually want to see it. This is not what downtown's about. I use downtown generally. It happens in the suburbs as well. The people just don't want to see see this stuff before them. How do we deal with this in an appropriate manner? I guess it's still going to come down to more money, more beds, and if we can't, these things may be much more permanent than we think? I mean, yeah, I mean I'm going to stick to the political side, away from the legal side. I, in these encampments, like I was down in Portland, they're even worse than Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Uh, Seattle's got massive ones. I mean, they're, all, they're in Mission, Maple Ridge. I mean, they've come, they've sprung up everywhere. And, and I think that the, if you really look at the data, they sprung up to coincide with the rise of the opioid uh, epidemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they sprung up in, you know, as property prices have just far outstripped anything that a lot of people can afford. And so, I mean, those two things put together, I think, is what causes it. And the, the data that the judge cited, 79% of these people, in, and I was trying to do the math, but about 79% of the people that are in these camps are white males. Like it, and so there's a lot of focus. I mean, it's still bad. There's lots of women in them and everything else. But this is the this is the. I mean, it's crazy. It's the base for Pierre Paul Levier, effectively. That's in these camps. You know, these are. Uh, I'd expect if they started actually asking these people how they ended up there, a lot of them would say, well, "I was hurt at work. I was prescribed opioids. I became. Uh, I started using them outside of that because I, you know, I was having withdrawal symptoms even then, mm-hmm. uh, and no one gave them help. And and I th- and I have cases like that right now. Wow. So it's the base. I mean, it's that, that's what that, that's the people that are in these places. I mean, they're soccer coaches. Uh, you know, they're welders. These are people. I, I get the guy. The guy whose case I have in Thursday on court. Mm-hmm. He was a soccer coach. He was a welder. Uh, he hurt his back at war, at work. He went and saw his doctor, and for three years was given opioids. And you know, he's that's, that's who's there. That's who's there. And and the problem is, I think our province has never really looked at helping any of these people uh, the way they need to. And that's to say, look, you guys actually have legal cases against a lot of these doctors. Yeah. These people don't even know, right? They can't manage their own lives, let alone, uh, you know, run these cases. And, and they don't. the doctors don't tell them. Yeah. It, it is amazing. We have 3,200 treatment beds, to my understanding, in this province. We've added about 320 since 2017 when the NDP uh, were in power. And uh, we look at that number, you still go, you know, that's it. We we gotta have with the this opioid crisis that we're all seeing in our city and across North America. You sort of go, wait a minute, that's it. And that's not a commentary on the NDP. It's a commentary on BC Liberals as well. Like we we've been hit with this thing, this tsunami, the tsunami of deaths, lives destroyed, and we still only have thirty two hundred breads. So decriminalization is one thing, but the broader issue of how people are actually ending up. Uh, dying or ending up in these tent cities that you and I are talking about, uh, we spent. We actually need to spend more money on a lot of this, don't we? Yeah, imagine how bad it would be if the eleven thousand people that died since they declared it was a health crisis were still alive. Yeah, you know, no, that's there, it. You're absolutely right. A full, there'd basically be a full city of people. Yeah, I actually had some friends. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's impacting all of our downtowns. I mean, I have friends who uh, took their kids to a basketball game watching the Portland Trailblazers, and they're planning to spend a couple of nights there, visit the city. But the homeless population, the 10 cities were so bad, they left after one night. They said, this is crazy. This is a war zone. We're out of here. Yeah. And they just left. Yeah, and, and Portland changed, like, basically uh, from the point that, uh, that COVID started to the point that, you know, like, we were allowed to go back down there. Like, it was like night and day. 
Yeah. Like the, you know, the, and, and it, it obviously carries serious problems. Like there, there's, I mean, people that are opioid addicted, they need to get, they want to get money so that they can buy more. And, and so they break in. I mean, I had my car broken into twice when I lived down in the West End. I mean, I had it broken into in front of the courthouse. <laughs> uh, so, you know, that, that happens and that's that, you know, so these things carry all kinds of problems if they're not addressed. But, you know, like if you there are some really simple, I think, solutions to this that like just have never been addressed. Like we don't have enough psychologists in this province. We do not have enough psychiatrists in this province, like not even close. Yeah, there's a broader well, it's a broader health challenge because our system runs at 95 percent pre-pandemic. And now everything yeah. uh, is uh, seems to be falling apart. And that's part of the reason is the system has always been run at nearly 100 percent. And everything yeah. else that's uh, sort of coming downstream now is because of that challenge we've had. John, thank you yeah. so much for your time, my friend. Really appreciate your your time today. Okay. You bet, Jeff. Have a good one. Let's uh, revisit our top story today, of course, is the first stay in our province where we won't criminally prosecute adults who are caught with less than two and a half grams of hard drugs, including heroin, cocaine, fentanyl, e- ecstasy, uh, morphine. BC will be the first jurisdiction in Canada to remove criminal penalties for possession. Many people across this country, across the world, actually, are watching this pilot project. Uh, since 2016, BC's declared a public health emergency. Nearly 11,000 residents have died of illicit drug deaths. Joining me now to talk about uh, decriminalization is Jennifer Whiteside. She's BC's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Minister, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Jazz. Happy to be here. Uh, it's a very uh, historic day as this province um, uh, begins a three-year journey with this pilot project. Is decriminalization enough in regards to tackling this big issue? Well, you know, Jazz, decriminalization really, it, it's one tool in the toolbox, and it has a very uh, specific purpose, uh, which is really around decriminalizing people who are uh, using drugs and who are carrying small amounts for, uh, for personal use. It really is about breaking down stigma and shame and the fear uh, associated with with using with using drugs. Now, some would argue, would it would obviously agree with you, but would say, look, shouldn't the focus be on treatment? Why not focus on more rehab centers? A greater focus on yeah. more housing? Uh, they've argued that our neighbor uh, Alberta is focusing in that direction rather than focusing on decriminalization. What do you say to that argument? Well, you know, decriminalization is um, uh, really about decriminalizing the people who are using drugs, you know, many of whom uh, will have challenges with, uh, with, with substance use disorder that need to find a, a pathway to care and support. It's in response to a call that has been made by people with lived experience, from law, by law enforcement, uh, by public health. So we've had a wide range, a very diverse range of partners um, come together at a table to um, to sort of you know shepherd uh, our our application for the exemption um, to the to the federal government forward and who who will now of course continue to meet. So again, it's a, it is not a one thing or another on this uh, uh, in terms of how we respond to the toxic drug crisis. We have to do all the things. We have to continue the work that we've done, of course, to build out treatment spaces, to build out counseling. Um, to build those pathways in our healthcare system so that people can a- uh, can access care, care and supports, mm-hmm. and that is that's been a big focus of the five hundred million dollar investment that we made in budget twenty twenty one is you know working towards building out uh, those services. How many more treatment beds do you think this province will be able to open over the next couple of years, or at least even over the next three?
three years um, as this pilot project, uh, we as we monitor this pilot project, how many more treatment beds do you see in the uh, upcoming year or two? Well, you know, we, we have uh, we have just in excess of 3,200 um, beds providing a range of services in the province. You know, that, that includes uh, over 320 that we've added since 2017. You know, the health authorities are working hard with our, um, with our many community partners who provide many of those services, as well as um, um, our sort of main partner, the Canadian Mental Health Association, which also um, provides those services. So we're looking to add beds all the time. Um, uh, Minister Dix just announced last week uh, the expansion of sobering beds on the North Island um, you know, we've opened sobering beds in Prince George. We're, so, you know, we have, you know, we have, we continue really every week to make announcements about new, uh, new and expanded uh, and expanded services, and and we'll continue to do that because that is such an important part of uh, an important part, a key pillar of um, how we are combating the the toxic drug crisis. As many people would argue, you know, the thirty two hundred number and the three hundred twenty you've added added is is wonderful, but. Uh, there's a lot more needed. Uh, is there any talk of adding more budget for you, for the health ministry as well, to add a significant, uh, a significantly more treatment beds in the months and years ahead? Well, we we know that we need to we need to be investing in all of the pillars that are supporting our approach. So the pillar that is related to um, to community counseling services, for example, uh, child and youth mental health through uh, integrated child and youth teams, which are connected to schools, uh, to our foundry services. We have uh, we have um, 13 foundries operating now. We we will have 23 by the end of by the end of next year. Uh, those are very important services. And of course, yes. More, more, more different kinds of treatment spaces for uh, for people, as well as our efforts at separating people from the toxic drug supply through um, uh, more access to prescribed safe supply. That's important. So all of these pillars, uh, all of these pillars are important, and this is a commitment that our government made. We made it with a significant investment, a five hundred million dollar investment in twenty twenty one. I mean, we're continuing to you know to work with partners on the ground to build out these services. But I think it's really important to note that, you know, when we formed government in twenty seventeen, what we had really inherited was a, a collection of fragmented services. Um, there had been no 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 concentrated effort to pull together a system of mental health and substance use uh, care and treatment and support. No effort made to really integrate that work into our healthcare system. And so that's the difficult work that we're doing now: is working on the ground with health authorities, with serv- community service providers, to really pull all of those services into. Uh, into our healthcare system, so that so that we we see mental health and substance use care is really part of primary health care. How do you define success when it comes to this three-year pilot project for decriminalization? People, some people may still be uncomfortable with it because it, it is not something we would have thought about 10, 15, 20 years ago. It is a different way to look at those who uh, are dealing with substance abuse. But it is a three-year pilot project. So how do you define success right. in regards to decriminalization? Well, there'll be a, um, there'll, you know, there'll, there'll be a number of measures, uh, a number of criteria that Health Canada is looking at that, um, uh, that, uh, that they will be working with the Canadian Institute for Health Information on, 
uh, on, on assessing uh, over the course of their very sort of in-depth research project that is that is happening with respect to the pilot. But importantly, our core planning table, which has all of those partners I mentioned earlier, law enforcement, people with lived and living experience, uh, pu- public health providers, municipalities, will be working with everyone who is on the front lines of this crisis to understand how decriminalization is rolling out and where we need to be responsive to that. And I think that was a commitment that Dr. Henry made yesterday at the announcement was that, you know, we, we will need to hear from people so that we can, um, so that we can, uh, you know, be responsive as, as, as it rolls out. But we'll be looking to see, um, do, does that interaction, or are we, are we making, gaining ground on destigmatizing? Um, uh, the the situation that people who use drugs are in are they able to uh, reach out for care and support are they are there are there resource cards which are is the information that po- that police are going to be providing to people when they're in those encounters which is about connecting them with to care and supports are people um, you know up taking up those those opportunities are they connecting with the substance use navigators that we now have in health authorities who are people at the end of a phone when somebody calls uh, are, are you know are, are are we seeing those numbers shift in terms of the um, in, in terms of people looking to access care and support and how are how importantly how how are uh, police experiencing how are frontline officers experiencing um, uh, this uh, experiencing the, the the work and their important contribution to trying to change the nature of that encounter from one that puts an individual on a sort of criminal justice path as opposed to putting them on a healthcare path. Final question to you. You know, I was reading about, obviously, today on the BBC website. Fox News is covering it. Many other uh, jurisdictions around the world are covering it. It's not just a local conversation or a national one, but an inter- international one. As a minister, uh, what goes through your mind in regards to the enormity of this change and, and this pilot project, number one? More importantly, what do you say to taxpayers who are listening this, to this today and they say, look, well, I understand where the minister is coming from, but I'm very hesitant with, you know, making these drugs legal or a small personal, personal amount. They still are uncomfortable with it. What do you say to those taxpayers? Well, I, I want to say first and foremost that this is that it's important to remember that decriminalization isn't legalization. What we have is an exemption from the enforcement of federal law that continues to be in place that continues to um, uh, to, to uh, you know to name uh, certain uh, certain areas as continuing to be criminal. So these drugs are not permitted on school grounds. They are not permitted by uh, to be um, carried or used by people who are um, who are younger than 18. They are there are certain other exemptions for people working in federal services. So I mean, the federal government has been very I think prudent in their approach to the parameters that they've placed around uh, around this pilot project recognizing that what we are trying to get at is those individuals who are carrying small amounts for personal use who may well have some, uh, a substance use issue that, that we need to try to uh, support them in, in addressing. So that's really the objection, uh, objective here, and it's about the stigma. And I really go back to um, Catherine Blotchford and her, her incredibly courageous um, presentation yesterday um, at, the, at the announcement for decriminalization uh, just about not only the stigma that her um, husband who died to a toxic drug poisoning, not only the stigma and fear that he must have felt, but how that carried on to her and her family and her children uh, and the, and the, the, the challenge, challenges that they've had in overcoming that. And I think we have to remember this is, this, this is our loved ones, our neighbors, people in our community, and we have to help. 
we, we have to step up and help and be there as a community for people. So today, I'm thinking about the 2,272 people who lost their years, their, their lives last year to the toxic drug crisis. Minister, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jess. Take care. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time. What's your emergency? Ah, I'm on a cruise ship. Ah, there was an explosion. Oh, my God, the ship is sinking. I can't get out. There's water everywhere. We're going down. I've got a lock on your location. Stay with me. Hurry. Hello? Are you there? Help is on the way. Angela Bassett and Peter Krause return in an all-new season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.